Welcome to the Mentia Matters podcast, where we talk about leadership, life, and the transformative power of mentoring. I'm Sylvie Brown, and I am thrilled to be joined again by Craig Warren. In today's episode, we are going to talk about inclusive leadership, structural bias, and ways to be a more effective ally. Before we begin our conversation, I would like to tell you more about Craig. Craig Warren was named Washburn Center for Children's CEO in 2022 and previously served as Washburn's Chief Administrative Officer. Craig is the first BIPOC CEO in the organization's 140-year history. Washburn Center for Children is Minnesota's leading mental health center, delivering transformative mental health service to children and their families at three clinics in over 40 schools, in children's homes, and wherever they are needed. Craig is a social impact catalyst with over 25 years of strategic planning service delivery, EDI, and consulting experience in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. He is motivated by a desire to create more equitable community outcomes around education, income, employment, and health. Prior to joining Washburn Center, Craig served as Vice President of Enterprise Solutions at Minnesota Children's Museum. His professional experience also includes leadership roles at Greater Twin Cities United Way, Best Buy, Rockwell Automation, the Coca-Cola Company, Towers Parent, and the United States Army. Craig earned his master's degree from the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago and his bachelor's from the Johns Hopkins University. He is a qualified administrator of the Intercultural Development Inventory. Craig has been a mentor for Mentium since 2019. Welcome, Craig. I am so happy to have you back as a guest today. It's great to be back, Salve. Craig, our topic today is inclusive leadership. What does inclusive leadership mean to you? For me, inclusive leadership means leading in a way that reflects my own experiences, knowledge, and values, while also bringing in the experiences, knowledge, and values of the people who are part of my team and my colleagues. Great. So can you give an example of, you know, like what this looks like? So I love that, you know, experience, knowledge, and value. So how, you know, how has this shown up in your career? How have you been an inclusive leader? Like, for instance, now the organization that I'm a part of, I identify as a man, and the organization I'm a part of is about 90% of our our staff are women. So I need to be aware of the fact that I am a male leader in an organization that's made up of women. And more so, the majority of we provide therapeutic services to kids and families. So most of the people who work here also are clinicians. They're therapists as well. So just taking those two identities of my identity as a male and working in an organization, leading an organization that's predominantly women, and me as someone who is not trained as a clinician, as a mental health professional, who's leading an organization that's made of people who most of them are trained and licensed as mental health professionals. Those two identities, being aware of that, I think is important for inclusive leadership, because the way that I approach things with a critical mass of, as a man in an organization that's predominantly women, I need to be attuned to what might be different with that. What are my own experiences and things that I've had that I might need to be aware of? How is that going to impact how I show up with people? How is it going to impact how I interpret their behavior? How is it going to impact how I understand them and how I lead with that? And I could just go in assuming they're just like me. And the things that I think and the way that I do that is going to work or acknowledge the fact the culture is probably shaped by the fact that a significant portion of the people in this organization 
don't have a core aspect of the identity that's the same as mine. And what does that mean for how I support them and how they interact with me? Right. And then just having your own self-awareness and your own awareness of the other people in your organization. I really like the intentionality around that. In our pre-podcast planning meeting, we talked a lot about, you know, bias. And one of the things that you talked about was, you know, the distinction between individual acts of bias and structural bias. And, you know, as you are an inclusive leader, it's dealing with the bias in your workplace. So can you talk more about, you know, how as an inclusive leader, you deal with bias and kind of differentiate the different kinds of bias that can show up and affect a a workplace culture and individuals within that culture. Mm -hmm. And I think just as a preface to anyone thinking about individual bias and structural bias, I think it's important that leaders who are aspiring to be inclusive leaders think about what equity, diversity, and inclusion means to them. Because I think the filter through which you approach individual bias and structural bias and, and combating both of those really needs to be grounded in your understanding of yourself and your understanding of the fact that equity, diversity, and inclusion are three distinct but related concepts and also understanding how are those relevant to the work of your t- the team you're leading and also relevant to the broader organization. Because I feel like if you're going to engage in that and you don't have that sort of macro level context and awareness, it's going to really be a struggle for you to even understand or be aware of where there is structural bias or where individual biases if you haven't done some of the other work. So I would start with, do you understand what equity, diversity, and inclusion are? Do you understand what they mean for your team, what they mean for your organization, and what they mean for your leadership? And then I think you're at a better place to really discern structural and individual bias. If you, if you have that foundation, and let's assume that we, that we do, um, then you look at Individual bias is something that happens on a one-on-one basis. So an individual bias says someone makes a comment to me that because I'm a Black man, it's a clearly blatantly racist comment, but it's individually directed to me. Like they're saying that to me or they're treating me in a certain way because of my race, but it really is one person doing it to another person. Systemic bias says all of the processes and systems are perpetuated and designed to disadvantage a group or to advantage a group. So I'll give an example An example of that. I served in the Army. My first professional experience was actually as an officer in the United States Army. And at the time that I was in the Army, you could not openly serve in the military if you were gay or lesbian. Like, it's like that job is not, if you're going to say I'm gay or lesbian, and you were trying to join, they would say, nope, you can't join. And if you happen to join and then determine that you were gay or lesbian after you joined and, and, and openly acknowledge that, you would essentially get fired. And there's a different term in the military, but you essentially would get fired. So mm-hmm. because of an identity you hold, structurally, the policies and everything say we, that identity cannot be here. And all of our policies and processes are designed to prevent that identity from being in this organization. And if it is identified within this organization from expelling that from the organization. That is independent whether an individual who was serving was gay or lesbian or was homophobic or not homophobic. The individual actions didn't really matter because structurally it said if you had that identity, the organization structurally was going to expel you. It didn't matter what individuals did with whatever they had. So that sort of is a difference between kind of a structural where the processes and policies are designed 
to perpetuate a bias or to keep someone out versus when it's just an individual thing where the system may say, nope, we're welcoming of all identities and races, but an individual could still be racist or transphobic or homophobic or misogynistic, even though structurally the systems are designed to say that's not acceptable. Right. That's a, that was a really good example. Can you go more into depth about how you recognize and disrupt systemic biases in examples that may not be as concrete as that, of kind of those more subtle acts of systemic bias? And it probably relates to kind of that equity, diversity, and inclusion piece of what, of being clear on what that means for your organization. I think one way of looking at it is to look at data. Okay. As I define equity, is means there's disparate outcomes, which means the outcomes are measurable. When we talk about equity as saying there and educational outcomes, this particular group of identity relative to the norm for the society is beneath that. And the data shows that these people with this identity or whatever they are graduate at lower rates than the, is the average for the norm. And there may be based on other identities actually graduate above, graduated higher rates than that. That's a math problem. So when you talk about equity and outcomes, and one way you can identify systemic bias is to really understand the identities and experiences of the people within your organization and look at it and break it down and disaggregate outcomes and look at, huh, why are we an organization that's predominantly Spanish speaking, where 90% of our employees are Spanish speaking, but 1% of the leaders are Spanish speaking? Mm-hmm. Hmm, it seems odd that if 90% of the employees speak Spanish, but only 1% of the leader of people in all levels of leadership are Spanish, that there probably are other things beneath that that you need to look into. And that seems like odd because if you're advancing people and there's not bias and most of them, and you're promoting people either with a combination of inside and outside and they're not represented there, that statistically would raise for me, that doesn't seem right. So I always start where if you're really interested in looking at systemic biases within an organization or within a system, I really would start looking at what are the outcomes and where are the disparities in outcomes? Where, what are the promotion rates for men versus women? What are the promotion rates for people of color versus white people? What are the turnover, you know, what are the turnover rates within that? What is, you know, who are we hiring? Who are we interviewing? Like, I really feel like if you're interested in identifying systemic bias, it starts with looking at the data and looking at the data and the data telling you this is this data is out of whack. Now, why? You have to do more work in understanding why. But if the data is out of whack, that usually is an indicator when you dig into that, there's something going on that, that there's some barrier that's presenting people who aren't holding whatever the identity that most people have from attaining the outcomes that others have. Yeah, I really like that because the data doesn't lie. You know, you may think like, oh, everything's going great. But you're like, when you really look at the numbers, you're just like, wow, you know, even looking at, you know, in terms of, you know, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, you know, why is there such a homogenous group of people that hold that when that doesn't represent the all the people that work there? So I like all those examples that you gave of who's who are getting promotions, who's not. Can you go back? So you kind of defined, you know, equity for us, what that means. I would love, can you go back and just offer your definition of diversity and inclusion and then how it relates to, you know, systemic bias? Mm. For me, um, as I mentioned there, those are equity, diversity, and inclusion are distinct but related concepts. So I talked about equity. For diversity, it's the visible and invisible differences that exist in everyone. 
So mm-hmm. wherever you go, there's always going to be diversity because we all have within us things that are very visible and discernible that are differences. And there are other things that are not visible where we have differences in that. So that diversity literally is everywhere. Whether you're necessarily attuned to it or not, it, it always exists. Inclusion is about, I think for me, two things in an organizational context. It's about whatever the identities that people hold do they feel welcome in your space? So whatever identities or whatever people bring, do they enter your team or your space or your organization or your building and they feel like welcome within that? And they have to define that, which I think for me is an important part of inclusion. I can't define inclusion for someone else. I need to be doing the surveying and talking to people and understanding and having them say like, I feel welcome here. I feel like I belong here. It's not me to say that on their behalf. The other piece of that's less individual for me is that's more systemic around inclusion is how are we as an organization creating a culture and policies and processes that have an inherent spirit of inclusivity and curiosity? And what that means is that we are always in there. There are new differences being created and coming into being every day. So you're never going to fully have lived experience or experience with every type of diversity that exists. But what you can do is intentionally cultivate an inclusive mindset that says we have a spirit of curiosity. So when I as an individual or we as an organization encounter an employee that has identities that we have not experienced before, we have curiosity around that. Not, ooh, get away, which leads into bias, which is, oh, that's not something we have or something we want or we're scared of it, which leads to bias against that as opposed to we've never had hired someone who has that particular set of experiences or whatever. I wonder what do we need to do? What, what do we need to do to make them feel welcome and to allow them to be successful in this environment? Are we just going to stay where we are doing things the way we're doing it? Are we going to, as an individual leader, as an organization, create policies and processes and continue to evolve them to account for the fact that there's different elements of diversity that may be resident? And you really want them to be able to answer that question of, do I belong? Do I feel welcome here? That may require the organization to change some of its policies, processes, and, and culture. But you usually need to start with a spirit of embedding a spirit of curiosity around difference to kind of set the stage for that. Right. So can you talk more about that process? I'm really interested in this of, you know, do I belong? Do I feel welcome? How do you go about developing the policy. So I like your idea, again, of getting data by surveying people, you know, do I, you know, do you feel like you belong in this culture? Do you feel welcome? Do you feel like your Mm -hmm. voice is heard? So how do you move? Can you just kind of walk us through that a process of how do you move from figuring that out to creating the policies and the procedures and the processes and getting the buy-in from the people within your organization or culture that is the way your culture is going to be. I think the first step in that is doing your own work. Mm -hmm. If you haven't done the work to understand what are the identities I hold, what, what is the visible and invisible diversity which exists within me, it's going to make it very challenging for you to do the work uh, in, in terms of your one-on-one interactions with people, or if you're in a leadership position where you actually have positional power and influence to put that into place. So the first thing I, and for me, I always start with is, am I, do I understand what identities and experiences and diversity exist within me mm-hmm. and how that may manifest in terms of my organization, my culture, my team, and then understand what's around me. What, what exists within the organization around me 
and what context or experience I have with that and what does that mean for how I show up with that and my comfort or discomfort or appreciation uh, for that. Because I think once you have that, then you're at a place of being open and curious to this may be a stretch for me. This may not be comfortable. This is very comfortable for me. I don't really know anything about that. I need to do more or learn more. And I think that sets the stage for you to listen. Because I think when you're doing this work at a systemic level, I mean, a fundamental guiding principle for me is the platinum rule. The, a lot of people talk about the golden rule, treat people the way that, you know, you want to be treated, but that's not inclusive because as I, for me, people are probably not like me in pretty significant ways. So treating them the way that I want to be treated, if they're like me, will work. If they're not like me, probably won't work. And most people probably are not really totally like me. So that probably isn't really going to work in an environment where I'm working with people that aren't exactly like me. Um, but the platinum rule is treat people the way that they want to be treated. But the only way you can treat people that they want to be treated individually or at scale is to actually take the time to get to know them and how they want to be treated and why they want to be treated that way. And in the process of doing that, then you'll have an understanding of, oh, you want to be treated differently. You want to be treated this way. Okay, how do I have a policy that sort of meets a middle ground that isn't exclusionary of everyone, but sort of is a middle ground for people that's not going to make them feel like they're totally outside in, in value, but sort of tries to be inclusive, which is hard as a leadership level because people are very different, are similar in some very fundamental ways and are different in a lot of ways. So really, but that, and that's much harder because it's easier to say, I'm going to assume everyone's this way and that's how we're going to do this. And that's much easier from a policy perspective. It's much harder to develop policies and to lead in environments that actually deal with the complexity of what we are. And, ex and an example of this is that I've worked on in a couple of organizations is bereavement leave. And this may not be think of something you think about or whatever, but it's something that has a pretty big impact. Um, bereavement leave historically and traditionally is someone in your immediate family passes away. And that typically is how it's defined. Someone in your immediate kind of nuclear family passes away. You get maybe three days or five days, and then you got to get it together and come back after that. And it doesn't account for this person who raised me isn't technically my parent, but I was raised by my grandparent or my aunt or uncle or my next door neighbor. So when this person passes, it essentially has the same impact on me as if this nuclear family that didn't exist for me, but exist, but your policy doesn't account for that. Your policy doesn't account for the fact that maybe I've never had children in my life, but I've had a pet and this pet has been with me forever and this pet passes away and I'm devastated because this pet has meaning for me and my family with that and the pet passes away. Or maybe it's a friend or neighbor who passes away. If you think about it really inclusively, grieving and loss isn't really bound by this little neat circle of your immediate family. It's bound by these are people who have meaning for me and they're no longer here and I'm grieving that and I need time off to process that. That's a more inclusive way of defining your policy of, and you, you, have, you have to have some boundaries, but you can see where, hey, we're including a pet. We're including you know, a family member and it's not an immediate family. You can def define it where you're making it more expansive. You can also make it where it could be intermittent. A lot of places have it where a lot of faith traditions have things where you do not, you may need to bury within a certain number of days or have the funeral service if there's a service, or it may not be for months or a year later before you, you do this thing because of the faith tradition or the cultural practice. A lot of policies don't allow for that. They're like, you need time off six months from now for someone who passed away? No, you need to take vacation time with that. 
that doesn't allow for the fact that different cultures and different religions grieve in different ways. Unless you're open to like, what is my cultural practice and who was this designed for? And looking at what are other faith traditions? What are other ways in which people would grieve? What are other relationships that people may have? You're not going to be open to designing a policy that you try to be more expansive than just this is what it is and this is a defined period of time and there's no process for that people may grieve in different ways and someone may need two days, someone may need three days or five days. And that's so that's sort of an example of kind of doing one's own work to understand where you're showing up, understanding what are the identities and the practices of the people around you and trying to design a policy that is more difficult to administer and has a risk of abuse. But if you're going through that circumstance and it is your pet and your organization gives you 10 days off to deal with that, how are you going to feel about how that organization sees you and is supporting you? That's, yeah. it's pretty big. That is so true. I was at a conference once and I was on a, like a, a panel and this woman talked about that, how when her mom was going through chemo and her manager just said, you know what, you can you know, work remotely. This was even before remote work is a big thing and take as much time as you need to be with your mom. And she said, I will be loyal to this organization mm -hmm. for a long time. And I love the platinum rule, treat people the way they want to be treated. And, you know, what you're saying is first have your own self-awareness of where you're, you come from, you know, what your, you know, what identities you bring to it, but then the, that spirit of curiosity, and creating policy and stuff from the bottom up instead of top down policy. Like this is our policy of being like, what would people like? What would these people like? What, you know, how do they want to be treated in these different situations? And I, and I can imagine that it's really complex, but also if you get it done right, or even if people see the good intentions with which you are trying to create a workplace environment that is truly inclusive of everyone's identities, that goes a, a long way in, you know, evolving this a workplace culture where everyone truly feels, you know, welcome and honored. And I would say it's very challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, like I wouldn't say like I'm, it's, I'm laying it out like it's and it's not that if you're really doing that, that's a lot of complexity and things to hold as opposed to how do you juggle these competing things. But I think people appreciate that you're on the journey. And as you talk about as a leader, what you're considering and how you're thinking about it and the trade off, because even saying it doesn't work for me, but a leader being able to name this is why we did it this way. And we acknowledge there are these other things that exist that are within our workforce that it's not going to work for, but we consider that and weighed that, like even the awareness of, okay, it doesn't totally work for me, but I get what you were juggling with that. And you did see me and consider that, I think is so important, but it's hard because you need to be vulnerable. You're, you're, as a leader, you're opening yourself up with that because you're not going to be able to be all things to all people. There are going to have to be, as a leader, there's limited resources, there's limited time, and you are going to have to kind of find this thing that kind of works for everyone. And that's not going to work for everyone. But leaning into that is much better than just like saying, we're just going to do it this way. I feel like that grappling with that is part of your growth as a leader. And it's really part of your ability to serve whatever your customer or your clients are as well with that. Yeah, totally. Craig, we have time for one final question. What is your advice for how someone can be, you know, either an effective ally or an effective advocate of a coworker with a marginalized identity? Mm -hmm. I think the, I mean, I think it is do your work. Like, I feel like if you're going to use the term ally or advocate, you better have done your work around why is there a need for you to be an ally or advocate? Mm-hmm. 
like what is the identity and do I understand the historical context more broadly in society or do I understand within the organization why there's a need for my colleague who holds this identity or these identities, why there's a need within that organization because of systemic bias for them to need allies. Because I think a lot of people skip over the why you're saying you want to be that why. Like mm-hmm. what is the particular, what is the inequity or outcome that you feel you need to be an ally for and are you articulating that? Because I feel like if someone's done that work, then you can go to the next step of understanding, hey, what do you need? Do you need me? I have an awareness of, I think you have identities that in this environment, it might be useful for me to be an ally to you. And this is why, what do you need for me to be an ally? And don't Mm -hmm. make assumptions around, I've done my research and I've done my homework and I've done this and I'm going to show up this way. If you're doing it for individuals who are in your your organization, talk to them, understand, hey, what's your experience? Is this true for you here? I mean, does this even resonate what I've learned or my awareness? And how does that manifest for you? And would you be willing to enter in a relationship with me where how can I support you with that if that's real for you? And I think that's an important part of that. I feel like it. if you're in a leadership, it may go to scale, but I feel like you need to start with if you're trying to be an ally to someone who holds identities that you have no context or relationship with, I would hesitate. I think it needs to start with. I feel like I'm an ally to this community, this individual, because I have some personal connection or relationship or understanding of to enter that on an individual level and at a collective level. But if that's not there, I'd I'd be leery of saying you're an ally. Yeah, right. And I like that the thread of this entire conversation starts with do your own work. Mm -hmm. I like that you always, you know, go back, like do your work and figure out, you know, where you stand, you know, and understand, you know, figuring out also the structural piece as to why these inequalities exist. And I love that asking questions, being curious, you know, what do other people really need or want as opposed to assuming you know, that if, oh, I know what they not need or want based on research and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it kind of goes back to what you were saying about creating policies and stuff as well of asking people, what do you want? What do you need? And figuring that out, you know, either at an individual basis of, oh, okay, I, I can do this or figuring out at a cultural basis of how can we create different structures so that we don't have a whole bunch of people that are experiencing bias because the structure is inherently biased. And I would just add to that, to me, this is leadership 101. At a practical level, anyone who's in a leadership role is leading people who in some ways are similar to them and in some ways are not. And depending on your team, there could be a continuum of that. So this act of doing the work and understanding that and engaging really is most effective for leading any team in terms of understanding the team and how can the team fit together. If you're not doing it in an inclusive way and doing some of the things we've discussed, how are you going to be effective in terms of supporting the team and motivating them and setting direction and understanding how to grow and support them? Yeah, that is really a great wrap up. I mean, I think that is just so true. And that it's if you don't already have this, you should be figuring this out. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's leadership 101. <laughs> 
Craig, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. I really appreciate this discussion on inclusive leadership and what that means to be an inclusive leader. I appreciate your distinction between individual acts of bias, structural bias, and you know all of your examples of what inclusive leadership looks like. You know, in, in creating policies and creating workplaces that really prioritize equity and diversity and inclusion has been just really fantastic. Fantastic. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mentium Matters podcast. If you like this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. We have many great episodes lined up, so we look forward to having you join us again next time.